What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Okay, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 29th. On today's show, we'll talk about Europe's sweeping new online privacy rules, which went into effect last Friday, triggering an avalanche of emails to your inbox. Then we'll be joined by John Carreyrou, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter with The Wall Street Journal. His new book, Bad Blood, chronicles his investigation into Theranos the now-disgraced blood-testing startup, which sold faulty machines that potentially put people's lives in danger. We'll get the scoop from Carrie Rue on this bizarre story, and we'll talk about what it tells us about how Silicon Valley throws money around, and whether venture capitalists and investors are poised to make such an epic mistake again. And we'll close, we promise, with Don't Close My Tabs, our favorite stories from the web this week. All right, April, how's it going this week? It's okay. It's summertime. How are you doing, Will? I'm doing well, thanks. And I'm excited because we have a voice memo here from one of our listeners. You know, we've been asking listeners to email us or send us a comment uh, or a voice memo with some question about something we talked about on the show. Well, we have one from Matthew in Texas who's responding to our recent show in which we talked about the merger between AT&T and Time Warner and what the antitrust ramifications of that might be. Let's go ahead and listen to, to Matthew's clip right now. So I live in a rural part of South Texas, and the only internet provider is AT&T in my area. I work online. I'm very computer-centric. A lot of what I do revolves around the internet. So AT&T, often in my area, will have constant uh, service outages, or at times they do not meet my work needs. In the extreme cases, they don't even have service at all. So... What I'm afraid of is that this AT&T merger will have absolutely no incentive to get better service or quality to its least served communities. When it is the only service in that area, I just can't imagine anything getting better. Matthew, you bring up some really good points, and I'm very grateful for you for listening and taking the time to uh, send us a voice memo and, and write us as you did. So thanks so much for that. And you are very right to be concerned about AT&T consolidating power and how that will affect places that are already poorly served, right? So when you're in a situation where there's only one broadband provider, or even if there's only two broadband providers, but in the case that you're talking about, there's only one, and I relate to that too, because I just got uh, you know broadband internet uh, for my home in uh in in Oakland, California, in the Bay Area, and the only option I had for high speed internet at least to, on my block, was Comcast. I tried to see what the AT&T option was, and they said that they don't serve my block. It's just Comcast. So with you, even even though I'm not in a rural area, and uh, and when we do see consolidation of power from these companies, they do not have an incentive to provide better service, particularly in places where it's expensive to maybe run uh, fiber out and uh, houses are very far apart. And, you know, they might get less money in subscription fees than they would in building that infrastructure. Then they're like super not incentivized <laughs> to build out and, and and serve the information needs of people. And uh, 
you know, your your concern about uh, AT&T getting even more power and then being able to kind of sit on their hands and and not fix the infrastructure that they have out there is absolutely correct. Uh, without other competitors out there, they have no one that's really going to take their business from them. Um, so I really appreciate you bringing in your perspective on this. And uh, we are going to continue to follow this merger case because it is a big deal that will very much reshape how we are able to get information. So uh, thanks for that again. And you don't have to think that AT&T is a villain to to, to see the problem here. I mean, it's a, it's a market failure. I mean, private companies, when we rely on private companies for Internet, I think this is a problem we're going to have. And maybe public broadband is something we could talk about more on the show in the future. I think you can see AT&T as a villain. <laughs> I disagree. They have a huge lobbying shop. They've worked really, really hard to create these market conditions. And uh, I don't think that there's any reason not to look to them for the uh, for the structure that they've uh, that they've asked for for so many years. All right. And now we're going to shift to another place where the government is getting involved in regulating technology companies. April, tell us what's going on with GDPR. Everybody's talking about it. I don't know that everybody fully understands what it actually is or why we're getting all these emails from every online service that we've ever used. Right. And so GDPR or expanded, it's the general data protection regulation. It's the broad set of new online privacy rules at the EU. Uh, these were actually rules were actually adopted two years ago by the European Parliament in 2016. But as of Friday, they went into law across the pond. They are now in effect. And uh, like I said, companies had two years to kind of figure out how they would comply the the new laws are the strongest online privacy laws in the world, and they did spark um, an avalanche of emails in your inbox, as we said this morning, because uh, in order to comply with the new laws, companies had to change their privacy policy, their data collection policies, and uh, in doing so, they alerted everybody that things had changed. All right, so what new rights are people in the EU getting, and which part of those benefits, if any, can Americans who use these same services expect to get? Well, it's hard to know what Americans can expect to get because we don't have any corresponding privacy rights. So uh, the answer to that is zero. Um, you shouldn't expect anything. Uh, but, you know, we might get some some things just by, by dint of the Internet being kind of borderless. Um, but now if you're an EU citizen uh, and, you know, you use the Internet, uh, you can request to see the data that companies hold on you and you can demand to get that data deleted. Um, companies now also need to get permission from the people they collect data on before using it. Um, um, and so basically, this is just about having more personal rights over data on you, the data that you inadvertently create as you use the Internet. The new law also requires advertisers to get explicit consent from users to target ads to them, like based on their religious beliefs or their ethnicity or their political affiliation or their sexual orientation. Um, and in general, ad companies like Google and Facebook and, and other smaller ones are going to have to jump through more hoops to target ads to people based on their personal details, like their relationship status. Um, and so it might mean, we don't know, but advertising might start looking more like magazine ads where they just have less of a sense of who they're actually targeting, you know, and uh, and it's a kind of a broader bucket. That depends on really how these companies are able to engineer the consent that they get. So if, you know, we still click yes to agreeing to all of these things, then, uh, it, you know, the we might not see much difference in the EU 
than what we have here, except for the fact that users can ask for more demands of how their data is used should they should they wish. But uh, but we might see some sort of consent regime where you just click agree. Yeah, and I saw at least some indication on Twitter. I don't know if this is true, but they were showing screenshots of companies that appeared to be using little dots on your notification uh, icon to make it seem like you had messages waiting for you so that you would go ahead and click through and just say agree to get back to using the service. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how that was set up or if it is the case, but uh, there's all kinds of ways for a company to coax us to click past and get going and agree to who knows what. And uh, that might be what uh, they engineer to get our consent here. Um, Another thing that's important to note with the GDPR rules and, you know, Uh, I'll say, just to piggyback on what I just said, although they might be able to get consent quickly, people do have more privacy rights, right? So you can say, stop collecting my data. In fact, let me see what you've got. Okay, now I would like you to delete it. We can't do that in the U.S. I can't ask a company to do that if I'm unhappy with how creepy it is to use the Internet these days because whenever I talk about something, all of a sudden there's an ad online for whatever I was just talking about. I know that's conspiracy (laughs) theory stuff, but, you know, people say it happens, and I feel like— you know, it, this contextual advertising is something that people might want to request that they're not participating in. What I was going to say, though, is that if these companies are found in violation, so if they are caught holding on to data that you requested they delete, or if they don't hand over the data that you asked for, or they're targeting to you based on things that you have somehow expressed that they shouldn't be targeting you on, they can get fined 20 million euros or about 24 million U.S. dollars or 4% of their global revenue for the year, whichever is higher. Um, That could cost a company as big as Google over $2 billion. So they have hired hundreds of people, um, maybe even thousands, but I know (laughs) at least hundreds of people to figure out compliance with these GDPR rules. Um, And it's really hit folks. You know, the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Arizona Daily Star, uh, all owned by Tronc, the, uh, the media conglomerate. Those papers are not available in Europe right now. Uh, because they didn't figure out uh, their privacy uh, compliance uh, soon enough. So uh, European users are getting a a note that says uh, we'll be back shortly. Yeah, and I have no sympathy for for Tronc and its constituent papers. That's a big company that's been really relentlessly focused on streamlining journalism to to the detriment of the actual work, in my opinion, um, to try to wring more profits out of their papers. But that said, it does bring up a, a point here, which is that the biggest tech companies like Facebook and Google have those teams of lawyers. They are able to comply. It's not going to really hurt them. One of the concerns is that it's the smaller companies, the the small publishers, the small online services that don't have big legal teams to comply with this regulation that could be hurt by it more than the giants. You could even get a, a you know, an increasing amount of lock in with the biggest tech companies that are that are able to satisfy these requirements. Or maybe companies should just stop trying to make money based on our private data and stop collecting it and stick to whatever online service they're offering that might not require such massive troves of data collection. Um, but uh, but it is going to be harder for smaller companies. And, uh, and you know, this, these are the most robust online privacy laws in the world, and it's new, and uh, we're going to keep following how it goes. All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with journalist John Carreyrou about his groundbreaking reporting on the Silicon Valley company, Theranos.
card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is John Carreyrou, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter with The Wall Street Journal, who recently published a book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. It's about his investigation into Theranos, a blood testing firm helmed by CEO Elizabeth Holmes. Her company, thanks to Carreyrou's reporting, has been accused of fraud by federal regulators like the Securities and Exchange Commission. Theranos claimed to have developed a machine that could perform the full range of hundreds of laboratory tests from a simple finger prick extracting a drop or two of blood, a claim that, if true, would have completely revolutionized lab testing and diagnostics for the entire healthcare industry. But it wasn't true. After months of reporting, Carrie discovered that the blood testing instrument marketed by Theranos could only perform a handful of tests, and the rest were sent to outside labs or even returned with potentially inaccurate results. Still, Theranos was able to court nearly a billion dollars in funding when Carrie first reported on the company and attract partnerships with Safeway and Walgreens to put the Theranos faulty blood testing devices in their stores. John, let's start with how Theranos was able to get so far. Their investors apparently didn't do the due diligence on the company, and neither did these multi-billion dollar companies like Safeway and Walgreens. I don't really get how Theranos was able to get so far with what was essentially a prop. And I don't really understand what these investors asked or, or didn't ask. Maybe you can help us. Well, the company is, a, is at this point a 15-year-old company. When she first dropped out of Stanford, Elizabeth Holmes was, 20, was uh, 19 and she dropped out in the middle of her sophomore year. And at first, you know, the, the early investors, people like Tim Draper and Larry Ellison and, and Don Lucas – uh, they were investing in, in a vision and, and a young entrepreneur, just like uh, there are a lot of startups that, that start out with nothing and just a vision. And so they were playing the odds. You know, uh, most comp- most startups fail eventually. The fraud started really uh, taking shape later in the company's life when uh, around 2010, Elizabeth approached Walgreens and Safeway and maintained to them that uh, – her device was ready and that it could do all these tests off just a, a drop of blood. And, and that was just not, not the case at all. And, and eventually, uh, she rolled out the finger, sticks, finger stick tests commercially in Walgreens stores in the fall of 2013, summer, late f- summer and early fall of 2013. And based on that rollout, she solicited more funding. And this is when the company mm. raised the lion's share of the money. So when you talk about the, the billion, the close to a billion dollars that the company raised over its history, 700 million of that was raised after they rolled out the, the finger stick tests in Walgreens stores and pretended that they had uh, new technology that worked when in fact they didn't. But you, you said, you mentioned something else that's uh, relevant here, which is that in the last years, when she raised most of the money, there were very few. Um, in fact, I can't think of a single sophisticated uh, VC that had experience in uh, medical technology or the life sciences. Uh, the people that she approached and that she was able to raise money from were these billionaires and these billionaire families who were not 
sophisticated investors who had no expertise in uh, laboratory science um, and who did not do due diligence. And so those investors were uh, the Waltons. Who Can you give us a short list? Right. So the, the Walton family, via two uh, investment vehicles, invested $150 million. Uh, Rupert Murdoch was the single biggest uh, investor. He invested $125 million. Uh, the, the Coxes, the billionaire Cox family in Atlanta that controls Cox Enterprises, invested $100 million. Betsy DeVos's family, uh, uh, the, our current education secretary, invested $100 million. Carlos Slim, the, the Mexican billionaire, invested $30 million. A uh, San Francisco hedge fund uh, called Partner Fund Management invested almost $100 million. And uh, its uh, top two executives actually did try to do some due diligence and, and met with Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani several times in late 2013 and, and early 2014. And they were just outright lied to. Um, they were they were shown uh, they they were given uh, profit and revenue projections that were really fictitious uh, that that had no grounding whatsoever in, in reality. They were shown data that was not data uh, clinical data that was not uh, clinical data from the Theranos uh, devices. Um, they were really hoodwinked. Um, so even uh, the investors who did try to do diligence were were just uh, bald faced lied to. All right. So the, the specifics of this story are fascinating. Uh, you write in your book about all the intrigue within the company as it grew and attracted investors. You talk about the secrecy and paranoia with which Holmes ran the company, how she surrounded herself with yes men and fired anybody who raised questions. Uh, I guess she started consciously dressing like Steve Jobs pretty early on. It's a great read, a great story in its own right. But let's talk a little bit about what's systemic here. I mean, is there something about Silicon Valley and the machinery of the startup industry that allowed this to happen? And and has anything changed since then? I mean, w what's preventing us from having another Theranos that that uh, makes headlines and magazine covers with a product that isn't really doing what it claims to do? Well, I would say yes, uh, that Theranos is the symptom of a, of a systemic problem. Uh, you had this enormous bubble uh, that formed over the past 10 years, and, and uh, a big reason for it is that uh, the Federal Reserve kept rates uh, low, uh, for a decade, and and investors looked for higher returns uh, in in places other than you know traditional investment like investments like bonds, and they turned their sights in particular to Silicon Valley, and so these enormous flows of money uh, started rushing into the Valley ecosystem, and and this money started being thrown at young uh, college dropouts like Elizabeth, and uh, they were able to to pick and choose who uh, they accepted money from, and they were able to uh, not you know, answer questions and not let uh, investors do uh, proper due diligence because they could just turn to another investor if, if there were too many questions asked that they didn't like. They, they were uh, granted uh, too much power in some cases. You know, Elizabeth controlled more than 99% of the voting rights. The, the board of Theranos couldn't even reach a quarum without her. Um, so it, it is, it is a, a symptom of, of something systemic. And it's really um, this huge sub-economy now uh, in the Valley that, that's grown up in the, in the past 10 years. The feeling among startup founders and VCs was that the, the laws uh, that apply to other companies that are public don't apply to private companies. 
this is where uh, the SEC cracking down matters. And I think the thing that bears watching now is what the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco will do. It's been conducting a criminal investigation of this affair for more than two years. And my sources tell me that that uh, investigation is very well advanced, that it's drawing to a close and that it uh, may well result in uh, criminal indictments of Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani. You know, and even the the more seasoned Silicon Valley investors, I mean, they say yes to things that they don't understand, too. I reported on a company, a, a Lily Drone, a startup that got, you know, 15 million in funding from high profile VC firms like like Spark Capital and Slow Ventures and Sherpa Capital. And uh, they were selling a, a product that didn't exist and couldn't really exist by engineering standards. And they got money for it. Uh, it seems like there is a culture amongst investors or maybe it's this kind of Silicon Valley optimism where they're just like, yeah, we can do it. It's not real yet, but we can do it. Uh, but when it comes to medical devices, that's just really scary. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, did did anyone's really like lives get in, at risk from this? This was like people getting bad results back, right? Yeah, I came across in my reporting more than a dozen instances where uh, people got questionable results and, um, you know, some, some health scares occurred. Um, as I detail in my book, uh, one patient got sent to the emergency room uh, on the eve of Thanksgiving and I believe it was 2014 and uh, ended up, uh, you know, get, getting a battery of tests and eventually uh, they figured out by testing her blood again at the hospital that the Theranos results were were wrong, but her doctor was initially uh, worried that she might be on the cusp of a stroke. So that there were uh, patients whose lives were affected by this. I think that had the company uh, expanded nationally as it was on the cusp of doing when I came along with, with my stories, it, it was on the cusp of uh, expanding the partnership with Walgreens to the whole country and to Walgreens is more than 8,000 stores. Then I think uh, the chances that someone would really have gotten hurt would, would have uh, uh, increased dramatically. You know, Silicon Valley was was started partly by, you know, with Shockley Semiconductor and the idea that you didn't have to be, um, you didn't have to have all the credentials in order to start a company. You, you just had to have the idea and the ability. You had to be able to build something cool or important. Um, and you could start your own company without being uh, an, an established uh, player. That's obviously has has led to some wonderful things, but has that ethos been taken too far these days in Silicon Valley? I mean, now you end up with a guy like Mark Zuckerberg, who's who's good at coding, uh, making decisions about how elections around the world will be run. Right, I, I'd say the big difference with uh, Mark Zuckerberg's company, Facebook, is that it is uh, it, it's an internet. It's it's started out as a website. Now it's mostly a start a smartphone app. And, and it's a, a social media, but it's not uh, a medical device that doctors and patients are relying on uh, for important health decisions. And so, you know, when Facebook was rolled out for the first time, it had bugs. Uh, Twitter uh, was famous for having bugs and outages, outages that would sometimes uh, last days at a time. Um, that didn't have any uh, consequences on the on the health of patients. Users, of course, were frustrated and angry. But that, that, that was about the extent of it. So I think when you get into the realm of medicine um, and you start uh, importing that uh, make it till you fake it ethos or that, you know, let's, let's iterate uh, ethos, I think uh, you quickly reach the limits of that. Uh, it, it's possible to do it with software, with computer software. Uh, the term vaporware was coined in the early 80s to, to refer to computer software 
or or uh, hardware that was announced with great fanfare by a company and then you know either never uh, materialized or materialized years later and with not the fe- without the features that were promised and Larry Ellison uh, was famous for that in the early days of Oracle, but you can't you can't use that attitude in the medical arena. Um, you can't mess around uh, with people's lives. One character I want to ask about is uh, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, or Sunny as as he goes by. He and uh, Elizabeth Holmes were romantically involved. Uh, they met when she was very, very young, right? Like when she was just a freshman at, at Stanford, and he was before already— Before even. Before. The summer, the summer before her freshman year. So she was 18 when they met. Right. And and he uh, he was already kind of a, a seasoned uh, Silicon Valley kind of tech entrepreneur at that time. Uh, that's to me, sounds like, and I don't want to project anything, uh, the recipe for a somewhat manipulative relationship, uh, you know, when, when you do have, you know, such big discrepancies in, in, in age and, and expertise and, 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 you know, someone who is uh, wants to be a entrepreneur so badly. Um, I'm curious if you could discuss kind of where he stands now in this and kind of his role. Maybe we should start with that, his role in building the company and uh, and where they both stand now that the company is in this kind of uh, dissolving phase. Right. So he, he started out as her friend and then her mentor. And eventually by 2005, at the latest, they, they were in a romantic relationship and they were living together in a condo that he owned in Palo Alto. Um I would push back actually pretty strongly against the notion that he manipulated her and that he was like her Svengali. Um, uh, really, it was a, a it was a partnership of equals, and if anything, uh, she had the last say. And I say this from having talked to dozens of employees who who saw them close up uh, working together. Um, she she was in control the whole time, and so yes, it, 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 you know, there's a 19 year age difference between them. Uh, but she was not uh, his tool. Uh, they they were doing this together and they were perpetrating this fraud together. Uh, as to where he is now, he, unlike her and unlike uh, Theranos, has not uh, settled the SEC charges. He's fighting them um, in uh, a federal court in California. Um, they are no longer a couple. Uh, she actually fired him uh, in the spring of 2016 and broke up with him and, and moved out from the, the house that they were living in in Atherton. Um, and they haven't been a couple since then. And uh, their lawyers, I'm told, have been um, uh, discouraging them from communicating because of the ongoing criminal investigation. John, I'm curious if you think that uh, this is going to be a real lesson learned for Silicon Valley. I am not sure that it necessarily will be. It seems like uh, maybe this is being read more as an aberration and, and less of um, a cue to investors to to really dig deep. Or do, do you get a different sense? I, I hope it, it's a lesson that stays with uh, Silicon Valley. Um, and and I hear that, um, you know, that, that it is uh, a, a story that has really shocked people and, and that uh, venture capitalists uh, in particular out there have a lot of them have drawn uh, some lessons from this. On the other hand, you have a guy like Tim Draper, who uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago was on CNBC defending her and refuse, refusing to acknowledge that Holmes had done anything wrong and, and calling me a badger and a hyena for uh, exposing this fraud. And, and I think, you know, people like Draper really uh, uh, the epitome of what's wrong with Silicon Valley. Um, these are people who think that just because you know, uh, someone has a bold vision and is an entrepreneur, 
uh, that that excuses uh, wrongdoing, that it excuses uh, uh, financial uh, shenanigans, and inclu- it, that excuses uh, uh, misleading investors and committing se- securities fraud, and that excuses putting patients' health uh, in harm's way. And and I don't think that you know being an entrepreneur with a bold vision excuses any of that. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, you still have to go by the rules of society and you can't commit fraud. Yeah. And, and it is remarkable that uh, for venture capital, which is an industry built on disrupting industries and disrupting people's livelihoods, it's amazing when you deal with these people and find out how thin skinned they are and, and how allergic they are to any kind of criticism. So I, I say for my part, here's to the badgers and the hyenas in the media, because uh, that's, you know, it was your work that, that helped to bring down Theranos. And it was, it was not all the, the glossy magazine covers that were celebrating Elizabeth Holmes as the next Steve Jobs uh, that we're going to, that we're going to accomplish that and keep people safe. Uh, John Carrier, thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Thanks very much for having me. One final break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best stories we saw online this week. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so for tabs, we're going to talk about a little drama first. Will, why don't you update us on what's happening in the world of Elon Musk? All right. Yeah, the tab that I could not close this past week, against my better judgment, was this Twitter flame war between hero entrepreneur uh, Elon Musk and the media, or people claiming to speak for the media. Musk. That would be us. That, that's, <laughs> yeah, including me, actually. Um, yeah. I, I jumped into this. Uh, Maybe inadvisably, but Musk uh, was set off by uh, a number of negative stories about Tesla, the most recent of which was an investigation by the nonprofit Reveal. 
into worker safety issues at Tesla's factories. Musk uh, felt that the reporting was inaccurate. He felt that the headlines were sensational. Uh, in general, Tesla has been getting more bad press than it's used to lately. This is a company that that was hyped wildly by the media for years and years, and now there's a sort of backlash in force. And Musk is really mad about it. So he started tweeting about uh, the media's quote holier than thou attitude. He said the reason people voted for Trump is because quote no one believes you anymore, and you lost your credibility a long time ago. Uh, and basically, oh, and he proposed uh, a new site that he wants to call. Pravda.com, where people can go on and rate the credibility of individual journalists and publications and even editors. Uh, and then that's supposed to somehow sort out this systemic problem whereby the media sensationalizes stories and, and reports things that are inaccurate and, and, in Musk's view, gets away with it. You know, I want to push back on calling uh, the media backlash against Musk. There's been a lot of very important reporting on real-world harms uh, by his company and companies that, you know, he owns and and runs and has for many years. And those companies are becoming bigger and they're starting to put cars on the road and – they are starting to meet more consumer demands. And as that has happened, people have been getting hurt, whether it is through accidents in the Teslas or it's in the factory where workers, uh, you know, according to reporting, have not been taken care of properly and their safety concerns have not been met. And that has made Musk angry that people are reporting on his companies. And really, this is what the press is supposed to do. So <laughs> I wouldn't say that there's been a backlash against him. I'd say that his Companies are getting bigger and people are watching them more closely. And uh, that could be a healthy relationship. But instead, he is starting a website, he says, or a, a company or some sort of who knows if it'll come to fruition, but some sort of project to rate journalists. And he's calling it Pravda, which was the official paper of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union uh, for most of the 20th century. Uh, and Joseph Stalin uh, used it to perpetuate anti-Semitic messages and also to justify the Great Purge which was a campaign uh, of political oppression that led to the state-sanctioned deaths of hundreds of thousands of Russians. So great choice of name there, Musk, uh, really evoking a lot there in relation to the press. Yeah, I I, I kind of wondered about that choice of name, if there's if he intends it ironically. Uh, if so, it doesn't really, uh, the joke isn't really landing for me. But maybe that's because I'm one of those biased members of the media. I think to the extent that Musk has any point here, it's that the reporting on crashes involving Tesla's autopilot software has tended to be sort of breathless. Uh, now, anytime a Tesla is involved in a serious accident, it makes national news. He's upset because, of course, cars made by other companies crash all the time, and it doesn't make national news. I think that's kind of silly because, obviously, autopilot is a new technology. I mean, it's a step towards self-driving cars. It's crazy to think that the media would not report critically on how safe that technology actually is. But that's where he's coming from. He feels like, look, I'm trying to save lives here, and every time there's a slight accident involving this fundamentally life-saving technology, the press doesn't put it in context and instead makes it seem like my technology is killing people. And, you know, just to be clear, the press does cover other car companies and does cover large crashes. You know, Toyota was sued in 2010 for a fatal crash that led to the recall of 8.5 million cars. That was covered broadly. Uh, in 2016, the Star Trek actor was killed uh, in a Chrysler, which led to the recall of over a million cars. That was covered broadly. You know, it's a new technology here. And also, he developed a cult of personality around himself that led to a lot of positive coverage for a very long time. 
And you can't just renege on that and say, oh, well, you know, now you can't cover me at all, especially when when there's bad stuff happening. So, uh, you know, if if other car companies were started by like Danny DeVito or I don't know who has a cult of personality around them, then, you know, we might cover that really, really closely because people are interested in Elon Musk for a reason. But, you know, his his lash against the media, I, I think, was dangerous because so many people do follow him closely and look up to him as a leader, as an entrepreneur. They say, oh, well, not everyone in the tech industry is so bad because, you know, look at how what Musk is doing. He's this environmentalist. He's working really hard to make things better. And uh, and people really took to him. And when he says that the media is evil or bad or not working well or working against us or biased, regardless you know, people listen to him closely, and when he uh, says negative things about the press and says that the press can't be trusted, uh, people listen to him and care about what he says. And this is at a time when journalism is playing a very, very important role in the country, and we do not need leaders like him throwing uh, this this kind of democracy-saving profession into question. Uh, so that's, that's my opinion on it. Whether or not what his motives were, what he's doing is dangerous. <laughs> so. Yeah, and of, of course, there always will be sensationalism in the media. There always will be inaccuracy. My concern is that he's painting with this very broad brush in much the same way that President Trump does where he makes it seem like the media is one monolithic entity uh, that's that's trying to mislead people. And of course, what that does is it undermines the ability of legitimate outlets to tell true stories and, and to report critically on what's going on in the world. Elon Musk, you have to be able to take some criticism a little better, dude. You've done a, <laughs> you've done a lot of great stuff and the media has praised you a lot. So, so yes, learn to take a little criticism along with all the praise. All right, April, what tab could you not close this week? My tab is from this weekend. It's a story from the New York Times. As Google feeds cats, owl lovers cry foul. Uh, so there is this operation, I guess, at Google to to rescue cats, to, uh, to, to feed cats. Cats are traditionally hunt birds in the uh, area where Google is based in, the, in, in Mountain View, California. And there is some tension around a particular bird that is quite endangered called the burrowing owl. Uh, that uh, these rescued cats or that these cats that Google has been uh, feeding uh, have been preying on, and that has caused a lot of drama. The burrowing owl is a uh, important figure in the <laughs> drama around at least land use in Silicon Valley. Uh, Mountain View uh, politicians have claimed that uh, because of this bird, they have opposed more housing being built uh, throughout Mountain View uh, because they 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 don't want to infringe on um, kind of the habitat of of this endangered species. As a result, a lot of uh, Googlers and and people in the area have found housing elsewhere, driving prices up. Uh, it's a complicated bird, and now it seems like Google's cat rescue uh, is making things even more complicated for it. I really encourage people to read this because it is a piece of drama that uh, really adds a lot of color to how these companies just affect everything around them in every way, including owls and cats. And I liked how the story specified that, like, it's another case of people with the best intentions, but they're just, Google is so large and has such a large footprint that they can't help affecting the world around them in unintended ways. I, yeah, and, you know, I, I want housing, I want cats, I also want to save endangered owls. I <laughs> So I guess I want it all. Um, that does it, though, for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. 
You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow April and me on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus, and April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, John Carreyrou. You can find him on Twitter at John Carreyrou. And if you'd take a precious moment to leave us a precious comment and review on iTunes, we would be so grateful forever. It really helps boost our show, and it lets more listeners find out about us. So thanks in advance. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. And thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>